The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Before we get to 1 Corinthians 10, especially highlighting verse 13, I want to read Job chapter 5. Probably the oldest book in the Bible, by the way. Maybe even before the time of Abraham, which puts it back 2,000 plus years B.C., so... God has preserved this truth in Job chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 for over 4,000 years. Absolutely amazing. And it's still relevant to all of us today because here's what Job says. Or here's what God says through His Spirit in verse 6 and 7. For affliction or suffering does not come from the dust. Affliction, problems in life, hard times, trials, hardships, painful experiences. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Just spontaneous combustion. That was disproved a long time ago in the book of Job. Verse 7, For man, or humanity, all of us, in a cursed world, for man is born for trouble. How's that for one of your Bible promises? Humanity is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. This is a truism. This is a proverbial maxim that is universally true, universally true wherever you are and universally true of all throughout history. Nothing changes. Life is hard. It's the lot of humanity. Believing in the Bible isn't believing pie in the sky and if you become a Christian, life will be rosy, you'll never have problems like some would have us believe. Just the opposite is true. Life's hard already, filled with trials, and many times when you come to Christ, it becomes even more difficult in different ways. But with that comes a rescuing promise from the Almighty God of the universe to His children. So let's go to, with that reality, the sobering reminder from Job, the sage of old. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, where we are catapult now, 2,000 years later, and Job's truth is still true for the Corinthians. And these Corinthian believers in their Corinthian church, with all of their troubles and problems and struggles and trials, they're living what Job said was a reality for the lot of all of humanity. Paul wrote his epistle to the Corinthians, pretty much to straighten out a lot of areas of their life that were messed up. They had a lot of trials, they had a lot of sin, a lot of compromise, a lot of bad attitudes. Arrogant, prideful, judgmental, closed-minded, unteachable. These were Christians? Yes. Not all of them were like that to the same degree, and there were probably some very blessed Corinthians as well in that congregation that were a sweet savor and beautiful influence to the rest around. But the dominant voice, even though it may have been a minority, the dominant voice that was echoing and reverberating and causing all the commotion were professing believers with some wrong attitudes, wrong theology, and very sinful behavior. And so that's why Paul writes 1 Corinthians, uh, all 16 chapters. Every chapter is a rebuke. And we are now in chapter 10. I preached on chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 last week, if you weren't here. And Paul continues to rebuke, to warn the Corinthian Christians, just hammering away. Hammer, hammer, relentlessly, chapter after chapter, paragraph after paragraph, truth after truth. Um, but he is pastoral. Every once in a while he'll say a pastoral comment or verse, calling them brothers and sisters or a word of encouragement. Then he goes back to pounding them relentlessly upside the head, and then he comes back and lets them know that he's pastoral. And so he pounded them last week, verses 1 through 12, and now he's going to be pastoral again. So he's got, he does have, it is tempered. There is a pastoral balance there. And so he gives one of these most amazing promises of Scripture in verse 13. So after verses 1 through 12 last week, just by way of summary uh, and reminder, that uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10 go together. Paul's dealing with one main theme, and he was talking to some Corinthians in the congregation who were a little arrogant, a little judgmental, and thought they were know-it-alls. They were looking down their nose at other Christians in the congregation who didn't know as much as they did, and they, these strong Christians, self-confident Christians, were engaging and parading their 
so-called Christian liberties of what they could do now that they're saved. And they were exercising their liberties in gray areas or even non-gray areas, actually, in a way that was arrogant. And the main problem with it was they weren't considering others around them more than they, themselves. That's Philippians 2. Consider others more important than yourself. So these Corinthians were not considering fellow believers as more important than themselves. They didn't care. It's, I have this right. I have this liberty. I'm going to exercise it. And they didn't even really notice. They were oblivious to the damaging effect it was having to those around them, fellow believers, or that it was a stumbling block to fellow believers around them. So that is the issue. So Paul's really addressing an attitude here. And also a, a way of thinking about how you live the Christian life. And so Paul's answer is in chapter 8, don't be arrogant. You need knowledge with love. Um, quit exercising your liberty to the detriment of other Christians around you. Sometimes you might even need to refrain from using your liberty. And many times when you exercise your liberty, you are causing other Christians to sin and to stumble. So that's kind of the point of, or the emphasis in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Be careful of how you exercise your liberties because of its effect on other believers. And then in chapter 10, he makes a little bit of a nuance or transition in his point of emphasis, and it's be careful about how you exercise your liberty in light of how it might detrimentally affect yourself. That was chapter 10. That was last week, the first 12 verses. And he said, consider the saints of old, particularly the two million Jews under the days of Moses as they went through the wilderness or the desert for 40 years and how they exercised their rights and their liberties and they had arrogant attitudes and they were self-sufficient. And they disregarded spiritual leadership many times. And they compromised with the world and got ensnared in sin, the sin of idolatry and immorality and complaining. And God had to chasten them and God had to actually wipe out many of them through the punishment of physical death so that their bodies were strewn all over the desert over the course of 40 years. Corinthians Take heed and be warned because that can happen to you. And then there were five imperatives that he gave in 1 Corinthians 10 that we reiterated and summarized last week is all these don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't complain, don't get involved in idolatry, don't toy with immorality, um, don't test or uh, be presumptuous towards the Lord and his grace. So they're getting hammered. So by the end, by verse 12, and then he just... The crescendo is verse 12 where he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. You are arrogant. You are on the precipice of your huge pride and you're about to fall into the pit and possibly undergo the chastening of Almighty God in a very disturbing, wrathful manner. Not wrath, but the judgment of God chastening towards the believer, which could be physical death, which he'll talk about in chapter 11. So it's a, a tremendous warning, and we need to heed this warning as well. You can't just, as a professing Christian, keep continually engaging in sinful behavior and think you're just going to get away from it, saying, well, Jesus died on the cross and forgives me of all of my sins, past, present, and future. Yeah, he does. But no sin is committed without a consequence. For God's glory is at stake. Your good is at stake. And so after hammering them, I think Paul gives verse 13 to encourage them. Because at the end of verse 12, they might want to... <laughs> the Corinthians were prone to kind of talk back and argue with Paul. Usually when he wasn't around. Usually behind his back. Sometimes in actual letters that they wrote to him. Face to face, I don't know. Um, but you can just hear the Corinthians saying after 10 chapters to Paul, Oh yeah? And that's why he writes... Verse 13, I think he writes it possibly to encourage them because they may have been discouraged at this time. Like, okay, I give up, Paul. Do you, do you realize what kind of culture we live in here in Corinth? It's in the gutter. And you're telling us we can't be uh, even close to immorality or idolatry. It's everywhere we go. It's in the fabric of our society. We have temptations and trials that they don't have over in Thessalonica or in Jerusalem, the kosher city of Jerusalem. We, we aren't like those other Christians, Paul. We have unique trials that no one has faced. You need to amend your exhortations to us. 
And that's why Paul says in verse 13, uh, actually, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to everybody else. You aren't different. You aren't unique. The believers in Jerusalem, they have similar trials. So that's, that's why this verse fits into this context. So it could be twofold that Paul's trying to encourage them because this is a very encouraging verse and promise. And at the same time, just a mild rebuke to remind them, you know what? You can fulfill the commands I just gave you. you aren't. Another argument they could have said is, well, we're not like the Israelites. That was 2,000 years ago, Paul. What happened 2,000 years ago doesn't pertain to us. It's not relevant. You ever heard that before? This is a different day and age. We have different trials and temptations in this day and age. Paul says, mm, I don't think so. Trials and temptation have not changed in 2,000 years because sin hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Humans haven't changed in 2,000 years. And the God of the universe hasn't changed in 2,000 years. So there's the continuity from age to age. And that's why Paul can say with authority to anybody, regardless of their trial or temptation, no temptation or trial has overcome you that isn't common to everybody else. So we're going to see that. So right now I want to focus on verse 13. And that, that's the bigger theological context of it. But now I really want to hone in and make this personal for us in a practical manner and be blessed by this fantastic promise. Let's go ahead and look. And I call the sermon today a biblical view of trials. Just verse 13. Three points that I broke it down into. Let me give you those right now up front. Three principles in this verse. There are more, but this is just a summary. Uh, Actually, number one is the principle regarding trials. And that trials are a part of life. Trials are a part of life. Number two, the promise. God is in control. And then number three, the purpose of trials. Trials help us grow. Another way to say it, number one, the principle, it's about having a proper view of trials. A proper view of trials. Did you know people have a wrong view of trials? Did you know that some Christians have a wrong view of trials? Did you know it's possible that you might have some wrong views about trials? Did you know that there are times I have a wrong view about trials? So we're all going to get straightened out by the Bible this morning, I hope. As the Holy Spirit we trust is our teacher. So number one, the principle, a proper view of trials. Number two, a proper view of God. Did you know that some Christians have a, proper, a wrong view of God in the midst of trials? We're all susceptible to that. And then number three... Uh, a proper view of self when it comes with respect to trials. I believe these are all driven by the text in verse 13. Let's go ahead and look at the first principle. Uh, trials are a part of life. I mean, my answer is there aren't those profound of life. How deep, how heavy, how profound. Actually, it's not. It's real simple. Isn't it? it's, like, it's almost like a no-brainer. That's what I love about the Bible. God is not trying to confuse us here. It's real clear what the truth is. It's real clear what he wants. But let's start with this. If we're going to deal with trials and have a biblical view of trials, first we've got to know what a trial is, how we define it, have the right perspective about it before we can even talk about a trial, explain a trial, or how it applies to our life. So well, this is kind of a theology of trials according to the Bible. There's a lot here, so I'll try to summarize, but... We need to think about trials. Look at uh, your text there, uh, verse 13. Chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation. And you could say trial. That's a legitimate translation. Parosmos is the Greek word. It's used in the book of James and other places. It's, it's kind of the common word for test or trial in and of itself. It's in the dictionary. It's just a neutral word. It's neither good nor bad. A trial or a test. The context determines whether it's a good trial or a bad trial. The context actually determines whether it's a, a test for good or a temptation inducing evil. The context determines that. Also, our response to the test determines whether it is a test for righteousness or an inducement to evil. So the context and also our response. Because a test can either be good or bad. If I give a test as a teacher in a classroom... Say, for example, in a Sunday school class, I give a diagnostic test about something that I'm teaching. Uh, the, it's supposed to be good. Encourage you. It helps us learn. It's positive. So tests are positive in that context. But tests can also be bad because they can be temptations toward evil. 
but the word itself is just neutral. So that's the first thing you need to understand. You can't always look at it as a negative thing. Uh, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. So the first thing is uh, the word trial has to be determined by the context. Uh, here it's just a regular old temptation. Paul just assumes that everybody's got trials or temptations. The Corinthians have trials and temptations. He has trials and temptations. Every Christian does. Every person does. That's the context for this word in particular. Um, another thing about trials that we need to keep in mind um, I said last week, and I've quoted this before, and I think I know the pastor that said it that I heard on the radio many moons ago, like 20 years ago. It was so profound, and I think I was in the midst of a horrible trial. That's why I never forgot it. He said the Christian life, a good summary of the Christian life is that you're either uh, entering a trial in the midst of a trial or just getting out of a trial. Isn't that encouraging? So the Christian life is just one seamless chain of unbroken trial after trial after trial after trial. Until you go to heaven and there are trials or chains no more. Amen. Hey, let's go to lunch. No, I got to keep preaching. Um, so that's true. Trial after trial after trial after trial. So no doubt with about 200 plus people in here, I suspect that there are some of you in here that are going through a trial right now. I, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I will also predict that some of you just got out of a trial and maybe a grievous one. And I'll make another prediction since I'm on a roll. I bet some of you are about to go into a trial you're not even expecting. And one more prophetic proclamation. There are some of you here that are very unique and have all three that are true of you in your life right now. I feel sorry for you. But as I thought about trials this week, I thought of every conceivable trial I could imagine that confronts humanity. And I actually categorized them. And so here I want to give these to you. Here are eight categories of trials that I think every human... It, I don't care what your trial is. You could dump it into one of these boxes. And I challenge you. But if you can think of a trial that you know of or you're experiencing that doesn't fit into one of my eight boxes, I challenge you to come and tell me because then I'll add it to my list. And then I'll have nine. But anyway, in my opinion, from pastoral experience, I, over the years I've heard a lot of people's trials. I've heard just about every conceivable trial imaginable. And I've experienced a few myself. And then the... The Bible's full of them. So that's where I got all this information. I did not invent this information. I tried to systematize it. Here it is. Here are the trials that you could very well be in right now. Number one, there are personal trials. Personal trials. Uh, what I mean by this is um, very personal issues like maybe you're lonely. This has to do with loneliness, contentment, you're dissatisfied. could be that you're single and you want to be married. That's a real trial. It's a grievous trial. Um, you, can't, you don't have satisfaction or contentment in your life for whatever reason on a very personal level. That's a trial. There are people here today in the midst of that trial. So that's a personal trial. Number two, there are relational trials, personal and relational. Relational is uh, primarily you're in conflict with somebody. It could be somebody in your family. It could be a spouse. It could be a, uh, an offspring, a child, uh, your parents, an uncle, a neighbor. Uh, it could be a conflict with somebody at the church, somebody at work. Um, these are real. These are tiring these make you lose sleep. These at times destroy people's lives if they're not dealt with properly. So we have personal trials. We have relational trials. Number three, there are behavioral trials. Behavioral. These are trials uh, based on kind of your, your makeup, the fact that you have a sin nature. You have sin issues you have to fight against and deal with and contend with regularly and routinely. These are t tendencies and propensities that you might have in your own life other create trials in your life or confront you as trials, behavioral trials. For example, maybe you've got a propensity towards alcoholism or alcoholic addiction and you've been battling it for some time or your whole life. Or maybe you have uh, immoral, sexually immoral propensities and trials because of your sin nature and it's just this ongoing frustrating battle that just continues to seem to undermine you as a Christian and that nag at you. Or maybe you're a person that is just consumed by anxiety and worry and fear all the time and that just dominates your mind and clouds your thinking and makes you unstable and this is a real trial so that's what i mean by behavioral trials so you've got personal trials relational trials behavioral trials and then you also have emotional trials and by this i mean something very specific that you're just suffering with loss you have sorrow because you're suffering loss the death of a loved one that, that's a real trial. 
It weighs us down. So personal, relational, behavioral, emotional, number five. Some of you have financial trials. They come in all forms. You can't find a job. You need a job. You're in debt. Where's the money going to come from? Real financial hardship. We know that's a, a real trial. Number six, maybe you have a physical trial. It has to do with your health. That comes in a lot of forms as well. Maybe it's an issue that you were born with uh, that has haunted you your whole life and you're never going to get rid of it. Or maybe it's something that was onset later in life, a, a disease or a cancer or whatever. We have that everywhere we go. People struggle with that. Or maybe it's it intermittent and something you have to battle in terms of physical health as a trial. That's a real trial. Trial number seven, after physical. Criminal, maybe you have a criminal trial. What do I mean by that? Uh, that you have suffered an injustice that you didn't deserve. It's kind of the word in, um, it's a very graphic term that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you. Man, that is a, just a very specific graphic word. It's kind of like you got mugged from behind spontaneously and uninspectedly. Don't trials sometimes feel like that? Just out of nowhere, you feel totally blindsided. What in the world? Where did this come from? And you, you lose your breath. You're in shock. It's kind of that word. Boy, if we could p- predict trials are a coming, that would help, wouldn't it? Because we would run. Oh, we got trouble right here in River City. And Well, I'm going to avoid that city. Criminal trials, injustices suffered of things people do to you, against you, unjustly. Very painful. Creates great havoc in so many areas of life. And then finally, number 10, there are natural trials. Natural, this isn't something some person does to you. It's a natural. It could be a natural disaster. Think of my friends up in uh, Vallejo. They were telling us when we got up there that when that earthquake struck and didn't wake me up, I slept just fine and dandy and rosy when there was that earthquake up by Vallejo. Well, it devastated um, the seminary building and a couple of churches up there. And even people's homes and personal lives. That is a real trial. So there it is. I think every human trial can be thrown into those eight boxes. Personal, relational, behavioral, emotional, financial, physical, criminal, and natural. And there's one more. that's kind of in its own special category, and that's number nine, and that would be spiritual trials. Spiritual trials. This is the book of Job. Real spirit. There is a major problem with spiritual trials for us as humans because we are finite. We are not omniscient. We can't see the spiritual realm, even though some people think they can. We can't. There's, there's stuff going on in the spiritual realm we don't even know, and it is happening. You can read Daniel chapter 10 and the whole book of Job. Job and his friends. That whole book is about trials, by the way, Job. Read it if you're in a trial. Go back and read it again. And here, Job's down on earth with his three, three friends, and they're kind of ignorant. They don't know what's going on. And, and Job is just getting pummeled with, every, with all eight of these trials, by the way, are happening in Job's life. And they're grappling for answers, and they're... Uh, trying to get, okay, what's going on? And why did this happen? And what was the cause? And uh, what is God doing? Is God doing this? And am I being punished for my sin? And is God mad at me? And, I'm, uh, and, I'm not, and so they're giving all these wrong answers. And they're trying to analyze what's going on. Little do they know that Satan and God have had a conversation. And <laughs> an agreement. They are totally oblivious to that. Of what set the stage. The only time that Job probably finds out about it is after many years go by at the end of his life and God through the Holy Spirit reveals to Job if Job is the one that wrote the book of Job. Oh, by the way, Job, remember the horrific 50 years that you went through? Here's the true story and here's why it happened. And did you know that Satan had a huge part of that and there was a spiritual component to it and Job would have been like, wow, had no idea. So we could be in the midst of any trial and then... By the way, every trial that we're undergoing could be happening on a very human, natural level without anything in the spiritual world going on. We don't need Satan and the demons to create havoc in our own life. We, we, can, we are sufficient to create that on our own, aren't we? And also because we live in a fallen world. So we don't need Satan. You can't blame all your problems. Let's, oh, this must be a spiritual trial from Satan himself. No, not really. You've got eight very good possibilities right there of why you've got trials in your life. So the spiritual trials are unique in that, number one, we can't really discern if they're happening. 
We can't diagnose exactly what is going on. We don't know if Satan has anything to do with this or not at any given moment. So that's what makes it unique. Also, 1 through 8 can happen without number 9. I already said that. But in addition to that, number 9 can indeed complicate, exacerbate, and be involved in any one of those 1 through 8, making it worse and giving it a satanic component to it. So that's just something to consider. Uh, point being, boy, if I can think of every trial that has ever confronted and faced humanity and I can put it into one of these eight boxes, uh, wow, that is profound. That would mean that no matter what trial we are facing, it's not unique. It's not a temptation that someone else hasn't had to endure at some point in their life. And that is exactly why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that no temptation or trial has overtaken you that isn't common to somebody else somewhere else. You don't have any unique temptations. I don't have any unique trials. None. Zero. Nada. And Paul's even, or the New Testament is even more emphatic about that reality that none of our temptations are new. They are not unique. You aren't undergoing a temptation that uh, no one else has ever gone before. Sometimes I see that in counseling. This is common for pastors or counselors where you're listening to the counselee and they're telling you a problem. And sometimes they might think that, well, pastor, you don't understand because uh, I'm, I'm in a unique situation and I have a unique problem probably that you've never heard of before. Not. If you believe that, uh, you're violating 1 Corinthians 10.13. Also, if you believe that you are undergoing a trial that I have never heard of before, that a Bible counselor has never heard of before, or that isn't uh, exemplified or illustrated in the Bible, then you're undermining biblical sufficiency. The solution to trials is God and His truth. The solution to trials is found in Scripture. If you think you have a unique trial that no one has ever gone, uh, gone through before, that there's no hope for you, then you're undermining biblical sufficiency because we believe as Christians the Bible has the answers for no matter what trial you're undergoing. Right? Because God is in control. He told us His Word is sufficient. So we've got to be careful there. Um, so this is very important to consider when we're talking about trials. A couple other just uh, corollary truths about trials and understanding trials and how they work. That was the kinds of trials. Uh, there's also the cause of trials. This was the dilemma that confronted in the mystery Job and his three friends. The whole book, they're basically trying to figure out the cause of the trials, which, by the way, that is futile most of the time. Ultimately, don't, don't try to do that. The paralysis of analysis of trying to figure out the ultimate cause of a trial that hasn't already been revealed in Scripture. Because Scripture does reveal cause, the cause of trials, at least the ultimate cause. Here it is. Uh, it's fourfold, but the solution or the cause is the same. You could be undergoing any one of these eight trials for the following four reasons. It could be because of your sin and my sin. Our own, our own sin gets us into trials, doesn't it? I know, I know from experience it does. That's what Scripture teaches. So uh, cause number one, your own sin. Or maybe you're in a trial because of the, somebody else's sin. That's cause number two. They sinned against me. They did an injustice against me. They robbed me. They created havoc in my life. So it could be your sin, another sin, or if it doesn't fall into those two categories, then the cause of it could have been Adam's sin. When in doubt, blame Adam. That's one of my philosophies of life. But that's true in Scripture. It, maybe it wasn't my own sin uh, in terms of, or another immediate sin, but because just by virtue of the fact that I inherit a sin nature from Adam that has been passed on to me. And then finally, uh, another cause for your trial could just be the curse that God inflicted on planet Earth in Genesis chapter 3. We live in a fallen world. And so a lot of trials result from living in a fallen world. And that's just all there is to it. And again, why is there a curse? That's a result of sin. So sin is the three-letter answer of the ultimate cause. So if you want to think about, meditate, commiserate, and go on and on and on about, uh, so what was the cause? I wonder why I'm in this trial. Well, well, sin, that's a good answer to start with and go from there. So that's the kinds of trials, the eight that I gave you, plus number nine. The cause of trials, sin. Uh, it's also important to keep in mind that uh, trials can be either short-term or long-term in any given situation. So we just got to face reality, and that's important when facing trials. When you face re re reality, according to the Bible, regarding trials... Uh, you will have a disposition and an attitude that God is pleased with and one that he's not pleased with. He just told the Corinthians, do not 
complain and grumble like the Israelites did. And thousands of them were killed in the desert. Don't complain. So if you have a realistic view of trials in your life, where they come from, the cause, the source, and you're a realist and not an idealist, then you can have the right attitude towards trials. And you can be a content person in the midst of trials. And you can still have a thankful heart in the midst of trials. And you can still have true joy in the midst of trials. This is why this is so important. Having a realistic view of life. And the world is going to give you an unrealistic view of life. You can do whatever you want. Not. You cannot. That's a lie. And on and on with their other proverbs that aren't true, that fly in the face of reality, that this earth is under a curse. Satan is real. He's on the prowl and he's a vicious lion looking to destroy your life, your family's life. He hates God. He's a blasphemer. And sin that lives in your own heart and everybody that lives around you. This, this life is a mess. That's reality. That's bad news, but there's good news. We're going to get to the good news. Life is not like an easy river. You know what an easy river is? Forget on that real slow flowing river. doesn't have any waves. And you get in your inner tube and you're out in the hot sun and you're sitting in that inner tube and you're just coasting down that easy river for about two hours in the shade, sipping on your soda pop and getting your tan and nobody's bothering you and you're away from the... Ah, that is not life. Life is not an easy river. Life is like a river, but it's got like its potholes and its big waves and its uh, waterfalls and its dangerous rocks and its dangerous trees and its dangerous critters living in the water and that you're confronted with time and time again. And life isn't just a, a little relay race either. I mean, it's a race, but it's not a little fun little relay. It's more like uh, the thousand meter hurdles. That's what life is like. It is a race, but that's what... Because you jump over one hurdle, and then you're confronted with the next hurdle, and you, get it, and you hardly catch your breath. And that's, that's life. Hurdle after hurdle after hurdle after hurdle until you reach the finish line. Yay, Jesus, I'm in heaven. No more trials. So that was the point, the principle. Trials are a part of life. Paul goes on in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. So remember what trials are. Uh, no temptation has overtaken you. Uh, again, overtaken that... A very specific word of what trials can so often be like where you feel like you got, just got mugged. Many times they are spontaneous. They are unprecedented. They are unexpected. They are surprising. They are unpredictable. You feel like you just got assaulted. No way in a million years would I have predicted that that would have happened to me. That's all bound up in that word overtaken right there. No trial has overtaken you. But such is common to everybody else. Humanity, anthropos, is the root word there for when it says common to man. It's not just males. Um, and it's not just Christians. It's the word anthropos means humanity, the human race. So trials are common to the human race. So you aren't different than anybody else. So that, that is incredibly important to keep in mind. Um, who brings trials, by the way? Who causes trials? Some Christians struggle with when they're in the midst of trials. Actually, this is pretty common. Christians are in trials. They've been in the midst of trials. And every time there's a trial and they can't overcome it, they're exhausted or whatever, the first person they blame is God. I've seen that time and time and time and time again. Sometimes you see that in the psalmist. At times he's, he's not being legit and he's blaming God. You see it with the friends of Job. They're, sometimes they're blaming God. Is that who we're supposed to blame when we're in a trial or a temptation? You've got to be careful there. I don't know if you ever saw Gilligan's Island. I grew up on Gilligan's Island. when We only had three channels on your television. There was no cable or internet or all that jive back in the Stone Age. So you had three channels, and one of them, and on one channel was Gilligan's Island, and it was comedy, and it was funny and hilarious, and there was Gilligan, and the seven people stranded on an island, and they're trying to get off, and it takes forever. And there are uh, natives uh, who live on the island who are cannibalistic and deadly and dangerous. And at times they threaten the life of the people uh, with Gilligan and his friends. And I'll never forget one episode that had an indelible impact in, on my life when I was six years old and scared me to death. Where a cannibal came to the island and he found the seven people, including Gilligan and the skipper, and he wanted to torture them. And so he built little voodoo dolls that looked just like the seven characters on Gilligan. So he made a Gilligan voodoo doll. It looked like Gilligan. And then he started taking pins and poking pins into it. And every time he poked a pin into it, it would actually realist, it would affect Gilligan and cause him pain. Now, that's comical, but it actually comes out of voodoo, the voodoo religion, which is even common in our world today. And this idea that some supreme super being, whether it's God or some demigod, is up there like uh, you're just, he's a marionette and you're down there and you're just a little puppet and he's 
yanking your chain and poking needles in you, in you just to torture you for his joy and pleasure and entertainment. That is a wrong view of God and trials. But the world views that uh, reality that way sometimes, and unfortunately Christians do as well. And sometimes they think God is trying to torture me, he's having fun punishing me, uh, he's against me, he's my enemy, he doesn't want me to succeed. Very discouraging. Uh, you cannot have, or God's tempting me, God brought this temptation on me. No, he didn't. Don't blame God. So let's go to James chapter 1 just to highlight that truth because it is so important. And maybe you've struggled in this area at times in thinking that way. You need to get the thinking out of your mind. Yeah, I am in a trial. This trial is horrible, but it's not a unique trial. It's a trial you can overcome. Uh, the author of Hebrews 4 said that Jesus himself, when he was a man, went through every conceivable trial known to humanity. There is not one trial that you've ever gone through or that I've gone through that Jesus was not subjected to. Jesus was subjected to every conceivable trial imaginable and he confronted it head-on as the God-man. He confronted it as a real trial. He confronted it successfully resisting the sin that went with it. He confronted it every time by trusting the Father who led him through the Spirit. He confronted everyone and overcame it victoriously on your behalf and my behalf so that now as the mediator, he can be compassionate high priest relating to everything we're ever going through in life. He understands. He is the greatest of confidants that we can go to, the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, you know about this trial in my life because you were subjected to a similar trial. Please be my high priest. Sustain me, I pray to you. He will. Give me wisdom. And that's why in James chapter 1, look there, verse 13. Let no Christian, let no believer, I mean it says let no one, but specifically Christians, this is a command when you are tempted or undergoing a trial and you are emotionally distraught, when you are, well, don't do this. Don't say, I am being tempted or tried by God. In other words, don't blame it on God. He's not trying to bully you or be mean to you or laugh at you or toy with you. Don't blame Him. He doesn't tempt anyone. Don't say, I am being tempted or tried by God, for God, not, God cannot be tempted by evil and God Himself does not tempt anyone to evil. Well, what about Job? Yeah, what about Job? Well, God and Satan were involved in the trials that befell Job. But it was God, it was totally sovereign. If Satan made a request, God could veto that and say, no, I'm not going to let you do that. Because God's in control. He's totally sovereign. He's all-powerful. He has power over the devil. He has power over all of our trials. And so that is clear when you read Job. God is in charge. He is in control. He defines the parameters and the extent of your trial. Total control. Yes, Satan was involved, very realistically so. Satan did inflict temptations. That's true. But God allowed the trials. So God is sovereign. He allows trials, but is it, he never tempts anyone to sin. So there is a balance there. I think a good balance might be, let's go to um, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, where Jesus was tempted. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. So Jesus has lived, lived 30 years of life in obscurity. He has never, nobody even knows who he is. He's never done a miracle. He hasn't been out preaching. Everybody just thinks he's a normal person. His siblings thinks he's just a normal person. He's the perfect older brother. Never gets in trouble with mommy and daddy. That's what they thought of him. And then he begins his public ministry, but before he... What ushers in his public ministry is his baptism from John the Baptist. And immediately after his baptism, chapter 4, verse 1, he begins his public ministry. But before he begins the public preaching healing ministry is verse 1 of Matthew 4 that says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Jesus was uh, prompted by, carried along, commanded by the Holy Spirit to go into the desert to face a trial. Wow! God the Father allowed a trial to come upon Jesus. God the Father was in charge along with the Holy Spirit of the trial that he was going to face and of the temptation that he was going to face. So the Holy Spirit didn't just allow it, but the Holy Spirit himself brought Jesus to that place where the trial and temptation would be. So... Where do trials come from? Where do tests come from? Well, tests come from God. Tests are allowed by God. Tests are authored by God. And God the Father and the Holy Spirit were in charge of this leading of Jesus into the desert. So then Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit 
into the wilderness, get this, to be tempted by the devil. Where does temptation come from? Well, it doesn't come from God. God tempts no one to sin. The devil was going to try to tempt Jesus to sin. That's not God the Father's fault. That's not the Holy Spirit's fault. The temptation to sin came from Satan himself. The same is true with us. Any temptation to sin can either come from Satan, his demons, or from our own selves. Because that's what James says, indwelling sin. So that's a beautiful balance, Matthew 4, 1. Because it's got God involved, but also Satan involved in the same verse regarding a trial that Jesus faced. It's true of us as well. Go back to 1 Corinthians. Actually, James. I want to finish James. Um, verse 13. Uh, don't accuse God of bringing you into this temptation. Well, why does temptation happen? Why do, especially by sin. Verse 14, but each one of us is tempted when we are carried away and enticed by our own lust. See, sin is the problem. Verse 15, that when lust has conceived, it gives birth. So it is a process. First, it's a neutral test that was allowed by God. Then if you cross the threshold and don't resist it in a biblical manner under the power of the Holy Spirit, then you cross the threshold into dangerous, sinful territory brought on by your own enticed, intrigued, uh, curious lusts from within. Oh, I want to see how how close I can get before I get hurt. And then you just whoosh, get sucked in. It's too late, verse 15. Then, boom, lust will conceive in your heart. Then it will give birth. The byproduct is sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings death or a consequence. So going back to 1 Corinthians. So the principle... Uh, trials are just a part of life and we need to have a biblical view of trials and we have a perfect model on how to handle any trial that confronts us that's the lord jesus christ we have the answer in scripture for scripture is sufficient uh, because it is sufficient to make us complete no matter what's going on in our life according to second timothy 3 the bible has the answer for any trial with that let's go on to point number two what is the promise in the midst of these trials that we're confronted with day by day well that god is in control that is not a religious platitude that is meaningless that is the anchor by which we are to rest our heart our mind our soul in that great truth it's the foundation of everything you've got to have a right view of god when you're in the midst of trials that's where we struggle sometimes with a wrong view of god a wrong view of god's character a wrong view of how god might react a wrong view of how god perceives us a wrong view of how god orchestrates a trial there's a lot of wrong thinking that goes on So it needs to be corrected. No temptations overtaken any of you except is common to everybody else. Here's the good news. God's faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. He is the anchor. If you are in a trial today, and I know all, just about every one of us is, then where do we go first? In our thinking. God is faithful. Everybody else is letting me down. Everybody else is a threat. I'm a threat to my own self. The one who won't let me down. God, He is faithful. He is our rock. God is faithful. He's in control. He is good. He is good. That's, that's important. God is faithful means He is good. He is loving. He cares for you if you are His child. He loves you more than you love your own children. Imagine that in the midst of a trial. Isn't that comforting? That is a reality. That is the rock bed of where you stand in the midst of a trial. What is God's view of me? I am secure in His hand and no one can snatch me out of the Father's hand, out of Jesus' hand, regardless of what is going on. God is good. God is not up in heaven. Again, like I said, tinkering and toying and tempting and having fun and being entertained or neglecting or abandoning us. That's not the God of the Bible. That is a warped view of God. God is faithful means also that He's true to His promises. That's where you go to a time of trials. Is you go to the Word to get God's promises. What are these promises that I can just hang on to in the midst of trials? And there, I mean, the Bible is just filled of trial uh, with the promises regarding trials. How about one of those promises that we all know in the midst of trials? And that's Romans eight twenty eight, isn't it? Romans eight twenty eight. I, I got to read it. It's just so powerful. We need to hear it again and again and again and again and again. It's true, God, I believe this, but God, I'm struggling to believe it. Lord, help, I believe, help my unbelief. We know, we Christians know for a fact, not possibly maybe in the postmodern world and all truth is relative and unknown, baloney. We know with dogmatic truism, it is a fact. You can count on it. 
from the God of the universe, we know that God causes all things. God causes, isn't that amazing? God causes all things. He is in total control. The God who adopted you into His spiritual family, the God who loves you through the person of Jesus Christ, God causes all things. There's nothing that gets by Him, good, bad, or ugly. It doesn't matter what it is. He's in control of all things. He has a purpose in all things. He's orchestrating all things. There's a goal in all things. It's moving in a direction that fulfills His purposes. God causes all things to work together and get this for good, for His good, for His glory, and get this for your good, for the believer's good. It's not just God's good, but for your good as well. We know. We know it. We know it. Boy, if you're struggling with that concept, then you don't know it. And you need God to help you. You need to pray and ask God, help me to believe this. Help me to believe this is just as true as 2 plus 2. Help me with your spirit. Uh, eliminate and squash my doubts or anything that's undermining my faith. I'm not believing this, God. I'm, I'm really struggling. I'm lacking faith. I'm thinking negatively. I'm thinking wrongly. I'm undermining your promises. I'm undermining your character. God, help me. You're good. I know you are. All things work together for good. You have good in this. You have a good as a result of this. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to walk by faith and trust you no matter what is going on. God, help me. This is how you should talk to the Lord in the midst of trial. This is how the psalmist talks to the Lord in the midst of trials. All things work together for good for those who love God. So this isn't a promise you can extend to an unbeliever. This is only for you as a child of God. God loves you if you're in His family. You're one of His children. He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. He's going to see you through. He's going to, he's going to let you fall every once in a while on your little uh, bicycle as you're learning to ride and you don't have the training wheels to help you. And He's going to help you back up and He's not going to let go of your hand and He's always behind you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. His presence is always there. His promises are always true. His character is always consistent. His love is enduring. He'll never forsake you. What a blessing to be in the family of God. I cannot imagine, as I know some of my relatives who have lived a life of 70 and 80 years without knowing God and Jesus Christ, I don't know how they can endure in this world. I don't understand it. At the same time, I, I see how they try to deal with the trials of life as they use any conceivable superficial means to numb the pain of the trials of life. From alcohol to drugs to uh, immoral behavior to living in non-reality and false religion. That's all those things are, is trying to cover up reality. Because they don't have the answer. They're not walking with Christ. And they don't have the promises of God like this. To see them through. God causes all things to work together for good. Think of the worst conceivable trial that you're confronted with in your life or right now today. Think of the worst conceivable trial you've ever been subjected to in your life, or maybe it's even the one today. And then go back to Romans 8.28. Do you believe this? That God works all things together for good. That He's going to take your trial and work it for good. Do you believe that? As a believer, you should. You have the right to. And if necessary, pray to God. God, I believe, help my unbelief. God works all things together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Going back to 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful. Uh, he goes on, God is faithful who will not allow. I love that. God, he's, he's in charge. He will not allow it. He is sovereign. This is the negative side of His sovereignty. There are just certain things He's not going to allow or tolerate. So don't be afraid. He's not going to allow you to go over there and get consumed beyond what you're able to handle. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he's in charge and he's in control. He won't allow it. Well, what if this happens? He won't allow it. Well, what if that happens? He won't allow it. Well, what if this? He won't allow it. Believe it. He is in charge. He's the sovereign, blessed God who loves you, Christian. The negative side of sovereignty, he will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you are able. Really? That's really hard to believe sometimes. I can't handle this. Yeah, you can't. If you're a Christian, you can't. Why can you handle it? Because God can handle it. He's in charge. Well, I don't believe I can handle it. It doesn't feel like I can handle it. Well, you can't. Scripture says so. God says he's not a liar. He knows better than you. He knows better than me. Well, it doesn't feel like it. Well, no, he, you can handle this. He's seeing you through it. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe one of the problems is when we say, really? I mean, is that really true? God is not going to allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able? I mean, I don't know if I really believe that. You know why we don't believe that? 
aside from the fact that we're finite, we are not omniscient, we are sinful, we're twisted in our thinking, we're self-centered in our thinking, aside from all of that, is many times, probably most of the times, because we have our own solution in our mind of what we think should happen. Here's how I think this uh, temptation or trial should be overcome. According to my plan, I think this is the way... I should be relieved on this timetable. I should be relieved in this manner. I should be relieved... And so we have our own mindset and we think, well, this, my solution isn't happening, therefore this promise isn't true because God isn't doing what He said He was going to do. No, that's not true. God is going to do what He said He was going to do, but He's not doing it your way. He's not doing it on my timetable. He's not even doing the result that you want. That is so true, but God knows best, doesn't He? God knows. I think about at our little pastor's conference that we went to this week, we, the preachers preached out of Daniel and got to that chapter. Great reminder where the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were going to be thrown in the fiery furnace, and they're confronted by the wicked king. And they said, oh, we're, we're not doing this, what you say. Fine, then we're going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And uh, they said, fine, because we know Jehovah. We know Yahweh. He loves us. This is the extended McManus paraphrase. Um, God is in control, and God is going to rescue us. God is going to preserve us. <laughs> and this amazing phrase. And even if he doesn't. I was like, wow, that's, that's my world. Even if he doesn't. Even if God doesn't do what I want him to do and expect him to do by rescuing me the way I want to be rescued out of that trial, even if we go to death, we're still going to be submissive and trust our Yahweh. That's how we need to face trials. God is faithful. I've got a plan. I hope it goes this way. Even if it doesn't. Even if it doesn't. I am going to trust the Lord. What a great model to follow. So going back to 1 Corinthians 10. God is faithful. He won't allow it. Uh, and then he goes on. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with, and then this is the positive side of sovereignty. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape. So there's the negative side of sovereignty. He's going to define parameters and he won't let certain things happen. And there's the positive side. Here's what he's going to do proactively on your behalf in the midst of this trial. Well, how does he work? God, how does God work through trials? Key way that God works through trials is that phrase right there. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, with the trial, he's going to allow the trial to happen. You shouldn't be praying, God, free me of all trials in this life and give me lots of money and make me happy all the time. This life is full of trials. It's an unrealistic prayer. So God is going to keep the trials. He's going to put you into trials, allow you to go into trials. He's going to preserve you in the midst of trials. He's going to walk with you through the trial. How is he going to do that? He's not going to usually bring on, or very rarely, bring on supernatural deliverance for you by pulling you out of the lion's den or by pulling you out of the fiery furnace. God doesn't work that way typically. God works on a human level through human means, through human people, through us, normal circumstances. And that's called providence, the doctrine of providence that we are so unfamiliar with. But there's the word right there in verse 13, provide. That is the providence of God working through the circumstances of human life, the human will, human decisions, the cursed earth to accomplish His will. It's not a supernatural deliverance. Voila! So that's why we struggle so often to see the hand of God because it's actually being worked through normal human circumstances step by step in a long chain of activity that God is orchestrating from above. That is the providence of God. And it's usually hard to detect, if not impossible. But that's not our God. So with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape. He'll allow you to be in the temptation and He'll just take you through the temptation, through the normal circumstances of life. But most importantly, God is faithful. He is in control. And then finally, number three, what is the purpose of these trials, Paul? Oh, by the way, the end of that phrase... Uh, so he'll walk you through the trial and says he'll provide the way of escape. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. And there is debate at times, well, what is the way of escape? Man, I want the way of escape. Tell me the way of escape. Please, just give me that. Because I want the secret hatch out the back door. 
Is that the way of escape? And God will provide you a secret hatch out the back door so that you won't undergo any trials, pain, or suffering. Ah, wrong answer. The way of escape, there's only one way of escape. And it's kind of bad news. It's not a happy answer. The way of escape is going through the trial. The way of escape is going through the gauntlet. You know what a gauntlet is? When I was in fourth grade playing tackle football, peewee football, every practice, I hated it. First thing we had to do is uh, ten guys line up on one side in their pads, ten guys on another, and they make like a tunnel. And McManus, take the football, go down to the end, run through the tunnel, and as, and as you run by, each guy gets to take a shot at your head. That was, and they called it the gauntlet. But I had to keep, and if I got knocked over, I had to get up and keep running and pick up the football till I made it to the end and escaped through the trial. It was brutal. It was painful. And if I made it through, then I was successful. And our coach made sure everybody made it through, even if you were crying and bloody and your peers were laughing at you. But that's the way of escape. It's going through the trial. And God will see you through the trial. And you have the ability supernaturally in terms of supernatural provisions as a Christian to make it through every trial. Some of these trials end in death on occasion. And then you end up where? In glory, where there's no trials anymore. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say as his life verse, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the Christian worldview. Let's go on to number three. Uh, well, what is the purpose of trials anyway in life? It's real simple. Uh, you undergo trials. Everybody undergoes trials. And everybody undergoes the same kinds of trial, by the way. Uh, so that, for the purpose of, in order that. So it's a purpose statement. The purpose. Why do we have trials in life? From God's point of view, who's sovereignly, ultimately, totally in control, so that you, Christian, will be able to endure it. In other words, get stronger in your faith. That's what trials do. They help us grow. They refine us. It's like when you lift weights and do exercises. and it's pre What you need in exercise is pressure and resistance. No pain, no gain. None of us has arrived in the Christian life. We all walk with feet of clay. We all have rough edges, and we need our rough edges smoothed off. And how do you smooth off rough edges from a rock that's got ricket edges? From a hammer, and that hurts. That's pain. Smack, smack. And we all need that. And that is the purpose of the trials of life, so that God may grow us and refine us and strengthen us, and so that we would endure and become more and more formed like Christ, and we're all just this big piece of clay when we get saved, and then God is forming us with impressions and resistance and pressure and pushing and pulling and stretching and shaping and making us uncomfortable and more and more as he fashions us more and more into the image of the glorious Jesus Christ and that can't happen apart from the trials of life that is God's purpose he is in control and we need to rejoice in that did I say we need to rejoice in that let's close with this before we have communion go to James chapter 1 back to James great book chapter 1 on trials uh, verse 2, we'll just read it again. We read it earlier in Scripture reading. Okay, Christian, consider it all joy. This is a command. This doesn't mean be happy about trials. This means maintain your deep-seated godly joy that came from the indwelling Holy Spirit as a result of being saved. Maintain that joy in the Holy Spirit deep in the recesses of your heart, no matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't mean, yeah, bring on the trials, God. Yippee! That's not what he's talking about. It's no matter what is going on in your life, you can always have true joy that unbelievers can't have because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. You are secure in Him. And you know the ultimate purpose in all things. And you know that God is in control. There's our foundation, our rock, our stability. So count it all joy. Don't lose your joy. Don't let your joy be robbed by fear and unbelief and the lies of the world and uh, the emotional uh, state of circumstances in the midst of the event that can all be blinding and lead us astray. Don't do that. Consider also implies that you're thinking properly because that's part of the word. Think the right way. Control your thinking. Subject your thinking to Christ and His truth and His word and His will. Keep your thinking in check. Think regarding biblical joy, my brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you encounter various trials, all kinds of trials. Why? Knowing the end result. Knowing the end result. See, it's not thinking about the here and now and the pain. It's knowing the end result. And that is knowing that the testing of your faith, what it produces, it produces endurance. It's going to make you stronger. It's going to help you grow. And you can look back over your life 
And you can and you can see the byproduct and the fruit of it, knowing that this verse is true. As I look back, I've been saved going on 30 years, and I think, man, look at all those trials and how painful it was. And look what God did as a result. He strengthened me. He changed my thinking. He amended my thinking. He rebuked me. He humbled me. And, man, all for His glory. That is awesome. Oh, but I don't want to keep doing that. But anyway... That's how God works. That's what this is. It's uh, all for His glory. And so no one can rob your joy when you know Jesus Christ personally. So count it all joy. So maybe an exercise today or this week in a meditative kind of a way before the Lord is having some quiet time and literally write down your trials. Here are my trials. I've got a relational issue with this person. I've got a, an injustice I suffered this week, God, and I, I lay this before you. And I'm just going to trust you, God, that, that you're going to work all things together for good on this thing. And I'm writing it down and I'm dating it. And if I'm still alive... When this is resolved, I'm going to go back and look and see, wow, what you did. You're true to your word. You are so faithful. Thank you, Father. And in the, in, the, in the meantime, in the midst of it, even if I never see this fulfilled or happen, God, uh, help my, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to continue to trust in you. With that, let's go ahead and pray to our Father and thank Him for the promises of His Word to carry us through. Father, we do thank You for our time together. And God, what a just an important and practical passage before us on trials as every one of us walks daily through trials, Lord. But we've got a solution from You, and you, You're the greatest solution. Thank You for being our rock. Help us to grow in our faith with You. Give us a renewed supernatural joy that only comes from the indwelling Spirit this day, God. And we give you the glory for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.